Good afternoon, this is Resonance 104.4 FM. This is Hooting Yard on the Air. My name is Frank Key. Ordinarily, when we think of harpies, we think of Aiello, Ossipete and Kailano, or as she's sometimes known, Podarge. The three sisters of Greek myth, bird women who kept stealing and befouling food from Phineas and were generally vicious, violent and cruel. Tennyson called them these prodigies of myriad nakednesses and twisted shapes of lust, unspeakable, abominable, strangers at my hearth, not welcome, harpies miring every dish. But that may may be more a reflection of the poet's fevered mental state than of the destructive wind spirits themselves. It would certainly be a calumny upon the character of Beatrix Cambodge, the so-called quayside harpy who haunted the harbour of O'Houlihan's Wharf, that benighted, sludgesome seaside town a day's horse ride away from Haemoglobin Towers. If, of course, you point your horse due south, and if, of course, your horse is vimy and fit, and not lame, nor tubercular, nor otherwise incapacitated. You might think it a simple matter to keep your horse healthy, but no! Our equine pals are subject to a host of terrible, terrible diseases. Lockjaw, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, equine colic, foal pneumonia, summer seasonal recurrent dermatitis and equine wobbler syndrome are among the ones to look out for next time you're hanging around at the stables. And also there's a very helpful website with the admirably informative address www.horsediseases.com to which you can refer. Don't forget to insert a hyphen between horse and diseases, by the way, or you'll go astray. As indeed you will go astray if you point your healthy horse in any direction other than south when riding from Haemoglobin Towers to O'Houlihan's Wharf in order to seek out Beatrix Cambodge, the quayside harpy, who of course I'm meant to be talking about. Allow me just to prick the back of my hand with a long pin, That will help to concentrate my mind. I usually use a lady's antique hat pin for what some think a melodramatic practice, but believe me, a tiny amount of bloodshed is well worth it to keep awake and alert when one might otherwise nod off into snooze world, particularly embarrassing when babbling into a microphone in the middle of a live radio show. There. I can read and dab at the puncture in my hand with a disinfected rag at the same time, so let us move on. Beatrix Cambodge wanted to be a harpy from girlhood after she read about the mythical birdwomen in a little book entitled Harpies and Other Things That Fluttered at the Rim of Cooking Vessels in Ancient Greece by Dax Blib, the notorious children's writer and historian who wrote from his cell in a big, forbidding prison perched on a promontory where he was incarcerated for life after causing a series of railway disasters. The book spurred the tiny girl's imagination, but it was not as if hers was a humdrum childhood. 
both of her parents were vampires, albeit of a fairly nondescript variety. Not for them remote castles and sweeping black capes and glistening crystal decanters from which to pour the blood they drank. Mr and Mrs Cambodge were lowly sorts, reduced on occasion to squeezing the last drop of gore from a fly or a blue bottle thwacked with a rolled-up periodical. Something of a wastrel, Beatrix's father tried to put it about that he was the eponymous fiend in Charles Ives's song Slugging a Vampire, 1902. Though this was clearly twaddle, his only tenuous connection with the great composer being a brief tenure hawking pencils and pencil sharpeners on the ferry across the Housatonic at Stockbridge. Actually, it would be nice if we could play Slugging a Vampire to you. Um, John, do we have a, a copy of Charles Ives' song here in the studio? I'll, I'll have a look in the, in the record store, which... There we go. And, yes, we do. It's filed just next to the Reverend Ian Paisley reading the entire works of Ibsen. So Marvelous. here we go. was Slugging a Vampire by Charles Ives, sung by Roberta Alexander um, with piano by the wonderfully named Tan Crone. And it comes in at exactly 25 seconds. Now, where was I? By the time Beatrix was born, the Cambodges had moved far, far from the Housatonic, fetching up in a village that was scarcely more than a clump of unsightly wooden sheds a village so remote and dilapidated that it did not even have a name. There is a surprising number of employment opportunities in such a godforsaken spot for a wastrel and his wife who would shrivel to dust at the first ray of sunlight come the dawn, although I can't for the life of me think what they might be. I puzzled over this, and a kind friend suggested to me that perhaps the Cambodges made a living by creeping around at night, laying traps for moles and badgers and weasels. So let us assume that that is what they did, and that farmers thereabouts paid them well for their exertions. That would at least explain how they came to be able to afford to send the young Beatrix to a finishing school somewhere in the Habsburg Empire, where she first encountered the works of Dax Blib and set her heart on becoming a harpy. She had wanted to be a bird. She learned that, as, a as the child of vampires, she could never ever be transformed into a starling or a linnet or a nightjar or a nuthatch, not even into a bufflehead or a crow. It was a cruel lesson, but she did not let it crush her spirit, Instead, she spent hours with the finishing school seamstress up in that weird, cold, crooked-beamed, dusty, stale attic, stitching and stitching, until she had fashioned for herself a pair of bright, resplendent wings with a span so wide when fully unfurled that the old seamstress gave a gasp and swooned, clattering to the floor more like a pile of dry sticks than a body of flesh and blood. 
and in her harpy heart Beatrix exulted at her power. She would have liked to fly away from the school by launching herself from the rooftops, but she was a sensible girl. She removed her wings and folded them up and stowed them in a tote bag and carried on with the day, through lessons in deportment and watercolour and piccolo and pastry finesse and recital of twee verses by Dax Blib, and only when the time came for the afternoon embroidery lesson did she flit away through a side door and off into the mountains, while the staff and pupils went scurrying in search of their seamstress, now stumbling, stunned and blinded about the attic, bashing into mannequins and tearing her paper-taut skin on scattered needles and pins she could no longer see. And Beatrix wandered in the mountains, stretching her taffeta and organdy wings, striking fear into cowherds and their cows. Stories of the flightless bird woman circulated in the taverns. To assuage her wrath, offerings of food were left for her in huts and shelters and hermitages. Sometimes reckless young pups armed themselves with their father's rifles and strode up into the foothills, trying not to choke on the tobacco pipes they clenched between their immature jaws, all bluster and braggadocio, hot for harpy hunting. Beatrix, by now, had perfected a shriek of such ferocity that the blood of those who heard it could have provided her vampire parents with plenty of ice popsicles. Experimenting on the cows and cowherds, she had learned that a few energetic flappings of her wings accompanied by her shriek could keep her safe from harm. Each and every gun-toting young fool who came in her pursuit returned to his village shriveled and slobbering and deranged. Most of them had to be locked away in gloomy cellars, their family's shameful secret, quietly fed on slops for years and years and never spoken of again. Perhaps they were the lucky ones, for their village pals who eschewed the harpy hunt for one reason or another were soon to perish in the trenches, the Great War doing for them what it did for the Habsburg Empire in which they had grown. And it was at the end of that terrible conflict that Beatrix Cambodge at last came down from the mountains and made her way, vaguely and without any real purpose, across war-torn lands until one bright day in 1921 she fetched up on the quayside at O'Hulahan's Wharf and there she stayed. Beatrix realised soon enough that she inspired not one whit of terror in the rattled and retired old sea dogs who haunted the quayside. These were ancient and crusty mariners who chewed fish heads when they were not downing tankards of salt water and grog, and most of them had seen things far more terrifying than Beatrix in their years upon the high seas. Pegleg Pinsent, for example, over a hundred years old, with brine for blood, who now slumped, collapsed and crapulent in a quayside kiosk, was thought to have seen so many ship ghosts that he shook still as he had been shaking for ninety years or more, 
Ever since, as a callow cabin boy, he had clambered into the crow's nest of the HMS corrugated cardboard to be confronted with a sea-soaked ghoul, which intoned a dreadful litany of incomprehensible maritime twaddle into his innocent ear. The ghoul was spindly. It pulsated like a jellyfish. It gave off an odour of barnacles and rot and death and it loomed above the tiny boy, its boneless yet bony-seeming fingers clutching at his sleeve, leaving a trail of slime which no amount of soaking in pail after pail of borax and boiling water would ever expunge. At the end of that first voyage, the young Pincent took the tunic home to his ma, supposing her laundry skills equal to any and every stain, ghoul-smeared or otherwise. And that good woman let, the fall, let fall the shirt with a shriek, a shriek compared to which Beatrix Cambodge's harpy howl was like the song of the nightingale she had, as an infant, wanted to be. I, young miss, croaked Pegleg Pincent as Beatrix sheltered in his kiosk during a rainstorm on her first day on the quayside. I saw many a ship ghost, and I saw ghost ships too. I saw shapes in the night sky that should not have been there, and heard wailings and screams emerging from the depths. And I smelled things no sailor ought ever smell, and touched what no sailor ought ever touch. And all of that on my very first voyage, miss, nine years old and plying the foul oceans on the corrugated cardboard. Now then, Mr Pinsent, said Beatrix, balancing a dainty teacup on her lap, for harpy though she was, she had not forgotten her Habsburg finishing school manners. You have spoken of eldritch experiences involving four of the senses, but what of the fifth? Did you ever taste something no sailor ought ever taste, as you would put it? As she posed this question, she unfurled one wing a little, just to see if it had any effect on the ancient mariner, whose beard seemed to be alive with tiny, crawling forms of marine life not easy to identify. He did not pay her wing any attention as he replied, "'Hard tack biscuits riddled with worms, miss. That was my diet then as it is my diet now,' he said. "'So the answer to your question has to be no.' I suppose. I see, said Beatrix demurely, sweeping from her lap the crumbs of a cake she had bought at a neighbouring kiosk. As she did so, she flapped her one unfurled wing with a certain eerie menace and prepared to display the second. Pegleg Pincent took no notice, for he was lost and shaking in ghoul reverie, occasionally slurping from a tin tumbler of rum or brine or rum and brine, he could not tell any more. The interview petered out. Polite Beatrix thanked the old sea dog for his time and shelter and mussed his filthy hair before striding out into the quayside deep in thought. Clearly her harpydom had failed to discombobulate the grizzled marine person. It was true she had not essayed a shriek at him, but with his long experience of sea shriekings, she surmised that his composure would have remained unrattled. Night fell on O'Houlihan's Wharf on that Wednesday. 
Under fat, shimmering stars, Beatrix huddled down under a greasy green tarpaulin she found abandoned at a stretch of the quayside where orcs and skewers gathered, far from the hectic tavern raucous with shanties. She took off her wings and folded them into her tote bag and placed it as a pillow and lay down among birds, lulled to sleep by the waves lapping against the rotting and crooked timber of the jetty. She dreamed harpy dreams. Ferocious and merciless and demented, she stole food from kings who had displeased their gods. Descending into the infernal regions, she sunk her savage talons into the bellies of suicides. She tormented unhappy sinners bound for Tartarus. She luxuriated in the filth and stench of her island nest. And when she woke on Thursday morning, the orcs and skewers had flown away, and she was alone on the quayside, her wings packed in her pillow. She jumped into the sea and swam elegantly, as she had been taught to do at finishing school. And then she climbed out and shook herself and preened like a seabird on a rock, and she retrieved her tote bag and put on her wings and shrieked and shrieked. And then she pottered off along the quayside towards a crumbling, ruinous hut where a signboard promised breakfast. And she sat down at a rickety wooden table, its surface smeared with the slime of a ship's ghoul, surrounded by sea dogs in tatty, unravelling sweaters stiff with wax, their rubber boots squelching and leaking. And she tucked into a breakfast of cockles and mussels and herring and lobster and squid and boiled water from a tide pool, her cup alive with tiny wriggling marine beings, somehow happy at home here, far from her finishing school in the mountains of what once had been the Habsburg Empire. Little Beatrix Cambodge, the quayside harpy of O'Houlihan's Wharf. Bishop of Southwark, this is what I do. Those are the words of the Bishop of Southwark, actually, when um, apparently he got rather the worse for wear at a, at a party at, uh, at the Irish Embassy. Um, and on his way home to Southwark Cathedral, he was found um, having, having opened the door of an unlocked Mercedes car and was sat in the back seat throwing the child's toys around, the child of the parents who had the, owned the car, um, throwing the, the toys around and when uh, set the alarm off and when the owners of the car saw this grey-haired man sitting in the back of their car throwing toys around and said, what, what on earth are you doing? He said, I am the Bishop of Southwark. This is what I do. Useful line to use next time you get in trouble with anyone, I think. This is called Pauper's Drool. And it's a, um, an instructive... Um, instructive children's story with a moral um, this is how it goes it was once believed that children frightened by thunderstorms could be emboldened by the application of a tincture of pauper's drool to their infant foreheads when I say it was once believed I mean to be very specific this was once believed by one person for a very brief period of time 
The person was Prince Fulgencio, the so-called prancing prince, who one autumn day found his daughter, the Infanta Gertrude, cowering behind an arras in her playroom. One rarely finds an arras these days anywhere except upon the dramatic stage, but the prancing prince had thespian inclinations and his palace was littered with theatrical props. Why for art thou cowering so behind the arras as thunderclaps rend the sky? asked the prince. In reply, the infanta Gertrude whimpered in terror as a fresh thunderclap rent the sky. Her playroom was on the topmost floor of the palace, and its ceiling had been removed, exposing the room to the mighty firmament overhead. The prince wanted to toughen his daughter up in preparation for a life of ruthless tyranny, and it dismayed him to see her milksop ways. Thus it was that he strode off into the weird woods of Wooby-Hooby-Hoo to consult with the wise woman. He found her, oblivious of the storm, tossing fallen and gathered crab apples to her team of pigs. The wise woman was a shapeshifter, and on this particular day she could have been mistaken for Nova Pillbeam, that siren of the British screen who, in the 1930s, starred in Alfred Hitchcock's Young and Innocent and the first version of The Man Who Knew Too Much. The prince explained his predicament. The wise woman, more intent upon her pigs than upon this strutting royal git, made up some blather about pauper's drool off the top of her head. Prince Fulgencio listened carefully, scribbled some notes down with a biro in his philofax, remarked upon the wise woman's resemblance to La Pillbeam, paid her with a pregnant pig he had found wandering disconsolate in the weird woods, and pranced princely and preening back to the palace. There he commanded his loathsome servants, Odo and Udo, to scour the countryside, collecting drool from paupers. In the teeth of the still raging storm, they did so, returning many hours later with two brimming iron pails. The prince took the pails and swept into the kitchen down in the basement of the palace and called for old Ma Blunkett, his cook, to prepare a tincture from the pauper's drool, just as the wise woman had prescribed. Lightning flashed and thunder roared. Up in the playroom, still cowering behind the arras, the infanta Gertrude was startled to receive a message on her metal tapping machine. It was from Professor Sigismundo, the wild-haired, wild-eyed boffin who had been banished from the princedom a year before and who was now based at an important research laboratory far, far away. The professor suggested to Gertrude that she get her laptop and look up his website where she would find an essay subtitled Pauper's drool, a quack potion, and no substitute for rational explanation when emboldening tiny ones terrified by electrical storms. Twilight descended with no let-up in the ferocious tempest. The prince pranced into the playroom bearing a tray on which was set a brightly gleaming goblet containing a tincture of pauper's drool, next to which lay some scraps of bandage pressed into service as pads with which to dab the tincture onto the forehead of the terrified quaking infanta behind the arras. 
yet she was gone. At midnight, the prince found his daughter at last. She was skipping, laughing, gamboling and giggling in the open fields behind the palace as thunderbolts crashed and lightning raked the heavens. And so never again did the Infanta Gertrude cower behind an arras during a thunderstorm. Never again were Odo and Udo sent off with their iron pails to collect the drool of paupers. And never again did the prince believe a word he heard from the wise woman of the weird woods of Wooby Hooby Hoo, who was, in any case, too busy with her team of pigs to twit the prancing prince from the crumbling palace in the faraway land of Gar. Time, I think, for one more story this week. This is called Cake and Pastry Person. Many, many years ago, so long ago that you were probably not yet born, there was a cake and pastry person who drove a van around Pang Hill and Blister Lane, tooting a horn in the summer afternoons, for it seemed the sun was always shining in those faraway days. Those were times when children still bought cakes and pastries from a van, a big pantechnicon painted yellow and red and pink and mauve and black. It was also, of course, the time when people worshipped the hideous bat god Fatso and walked the earth in fear of his flapping wings and his shrill squeaking that churned up the innards and pierced the soul. Where, in other lands, the roads would be lined by milestones telling the distance to an important town or port, here there were hundreds and hundreds of huge stone carvings of Fatso, the visible reminder of his terrible and terribly haphazard power. Children were protected from the worst of his wrath, for Fatso the Bat God did not fully reveal himself until a person reached adulthood. For tinies, the stone statues were simply part of the landscape, like trees or kiosks or pneumatic power towers. Although the bat god is forgotten today, everyone remembers the resin hoops that were the favourite playthings of young and old alike. I'm sure you know the words to that old song. We skip and frolic and loop the loops along Pang Hill with our resin hoops. We skip and frolic on Blister Lane. With our resin hoops we loop again. Sometimes children would play at tossing their hoops over a fatso statue, giving the bat god a necklace. Everyone knew that a hoop's resin, once resting around the stone neck of the god, would begin immediately to rot, and that by the next morning nothing would remain but a squelchy, foul-smelling string of glutinous goo drippity-dripping onto the ground, where soon vile, prickly, poisonous weeds would sprout. These were the roads up and down which the cake and pastry person's van would trundle, slowing to a halt whenever a little crowd of tinies gathered, each child clutching a cake and pastry token. In an excited gaggle, the children would exchange their tokens for cakes and pastries, 
and the cake and pastry person would collect the tokens in his token tin, which rattled when he shook it, and shake it he did to hear that pleasing rattle. He beamed at the children as he handed out his cakes and pastries and took their tokens and rattled his token tin, but an acute observer might see that the beam was a false rictus grin, for the cake and pastry person was plunged in melancholy. He remembered the innocent times when he too had been able to eat cakes and pastries without a care. Now, like every adult in the land, his days were consumed by a desperate need to placate Fatso the hideous bat god. It seemed that Fatso needed more and more tokens every day, and the cake and pastry person was seldom satisfied until his tin was so crammed with tokens that it no longer rattled. Only then could he cease driving his pantechnicon round and round the roads and park by the perimeter fence of the Swan Sanctuary and take his tin on foot along the lane to Fatso's cave and wait with all the other supplicants for night to fall and for the Bat God's lieutenants to shimmer into view. When at last his turn came, he would empty the tin into the outstretched paws of a greedy and grasping lieutenant and plead for benediction, but benediction rarely came. Tomorrow, a bigger tin, more tokens. Thus was he commanded in the horrible, high-pitched squeals of Fatso's inhuman myrmidons. One by one, then, they would flit away with their booty into the deepest, darkest recesses of the cave, and the cake and pastry person and all the other hunched and sorry believers would traipse away back to their huts and shacks and cabins and try to snatch a few brief hours' sleep before dawn broke and they faced a new day with redoubled effort. As they slept, the resin hoops rotted on the statues of their bat god, Poisonous weeds crept and curled along the ground, and in the nurseries, under cover of the night, tiny children giggled with delight, happy that they had bolstered Fatso's power for another day, sure in the knowledge that tomorrow would bring more looping the loop with their resin hoops, more sunshine, and more cakes and pastries from the cake and pastry persons, yellow and red and pink and mauve and black cake and pastry van. That's all we have time for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, I'll be back next week. Yeah, I, I am the Bishop of Southwark, and this is what I do. <laughs>